very nice to be back, and it's very nice to be doing Plato some more. Right? When I go back to Plato, it's like uh, an old friend, or uh, actually, it's not like a person friend, but some of my closest friends are books. I know that's weird, but it's true. And uh, this is one of the most beautiful things ever written. Again, you don't have to believe that, but I believe that. And uh, it's, a, it's an astonishing tour de force. Whatever you think is going on, you're only getting a fraction of it. Okay? And uh, the symposium is uh, a commentary on Athens, particularly upon its leadership. All right? Uh, you learn a lot about a person if you know how they pray. Right? Because the things that people pray for and the way they ask God for things tells you a lot about the state of their psyche. Well, the same is true for the things that people love. Right? Uh, there was an author, I forget who it was, but uh, he said, tell me who you sleep with and I'll tell you who you are. There's some truth in that, actually. The thing you are in love with right, inevitably discloses you. So, love is at the core of our consciousness. It's one of the most important things in human life. And the kind of love they're talking about is eros, sexual desire. Right? There are different Greek terms for love because they're a smarter bunch of people than we are. <laughs> so, uh, we have to trot out the Greek when we want to distinguish eros from philia, which is like association. Right, as in affiliation, that's the source, and agape, which is Christian love, benevolence or goodwill, charity in St. Paul's sense. Okay? But eros is something everybody knows about. All right? The reason why is that, like it or not, we all have eros built into us. All right? We have desires, and there's nobody who gets out without them. All right? Look, once you hit, I don't know, 13 to 15, you, your hormones switch on and you are in the grip of desires that you don't control or understand. Right? There's no one who's living a quiet, happy life at the age of 12 who says, you know what I really need is a bunch of powerful impulses that take control of me and push me around. <laughs> no, there's nobody who's ever asked for that. Right? But here's the deal. It doesn't matter whether you ask for it. It's yours anyway. In other words, you get it for showing up. Right? And if you look around at the world, the amount of trouble people get into on account of arrows is pretty amazing. In other words, uh, people driven by their passions can do all kinds of stupid stuff. All right? I, mean, I, don't need, I don't even need to give you the examples. There are so many of them. All right? uh, probably there's no human being that can look back on their life when they're old like me and say, there was never a time when I was a fool for love. Here's the deal, if you haven't done it yet, you will. Yeah, you think I'm joking, I'm not. <laughs> um, your passions will push you around, make you do and say stupid stuff. If you haven't already, I'm not inquiring, just my point is, uh, if you haven't done this yet, you will, <laughs> because this is the human condition. We are rational animals, but I wouldn't say actually, we are potentially rational animals. We are intermittently rational animals. All right? But no one has ever fallen in love rationally. 
I mean, there's nobody who looks at their beloved and says, you are the product of a cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> nobody thinks that. All right. As a matter of fact, people will fall in love with the damnedest others that will make their lives crazy and miserable. That happens all the time, too. Okay? And who's doing that to you? You. All right. So welcome to the world of emotion. And yet, um, there are some proper uh, deployments of human emotion and gratification of human emotion, and there are also improper ones. This is mostly about improper ones, all right? A couple of things to remember. First of all, in ancient Athens, homosexuality all right, exists, but it's mostly an aristocratic thing. In other words, the 5% of the rich, five, the richest 5% of society you will find that they are often involved with homosexual relationships. All right? The rest of society generally doesn't find it all that interesting. Uh, the same pattern, strangely enough, will emerge if you look at the history of something like England. There's a homosexual tradition there, but it's almost always aristocratic. Right? It's connected with the idea that, that particularly men get sent to all boys' schools and then, at that time, get sent to all male colleges. All right? So uh, the exclusively male quality of social life tends to push people in the direction of homosexuality. Right? It's not a necessity, but you see it more often. All right? uh, another thing is that this is a very important night. And uh, this is part of why I had you read Thucydides. Okay? Now, this is a good night because Agathon is Celebrating, actually, he started celebrating last night, but he's still celebrating now. His victory as a tragic writer, in other words, his plays won first prize. So he's the talk of the town, and he's got a great name in Greek. Agathon means the good. That's why they have all those jokes about getting next to the good and having the physical contact with the good. Uh, send the good over to your direction because you're physically in contact with the good. That's what all those plays on words and all those jokes about sitting next to Agathon are about. The closer you get to the good, the better you are. Okay? Socrates, of course, always likes to be around the good. Not this particular good. He's not as impressed with this good as this good is with himself. Right? But Socrates is, is very interested in the good, and he got invited to a dinner party. Actually, it's not just a dinner party. It's a symposium. Now, you know nowadays that we use the term symposium to mean a sort of gathering of scholars to think deep thoughts, exchange ideas, and deep stuff like that. That's not what it meant back then. Mm -hmm. Plato's changed everything. Plato's changed everything, right. Um, a symposium is a drinking party. All right? And it's not just any old drinking party. This is going to be in a household, in an aristocratic household. Look, uh, lower class Athenians just get drunk on their own if they get the chance. But here, this is class. Now you have to remember what a, a meal or what a drinking party is like in ancient Greece. First of all, you don't sit at a table the way you do at a dining room, the way you do for Thanksgiving dinner. Instead, you recline on couches, and there's a very low table between all of you. And you don't have silverware, because knives and forks have, well, knives exist, but forks and spoons and silverware doesn't exist yet. One of the great achievements of the human species is the invention of silverware. <laughs> it sounds like no, no big deal until you actually try eating with your hands. 
It's actually a step forward in civilization. Uh, no, it's insufficiently appreciated. All right. So we all lay down. And this is relaxed. I mean, um, they're already horizontal. This is just perfect. Right? <laughs> now, early in the experience, they send away the flute girls. The flute girls are prostitutes. Okay? In other words, typically a night with these lads is sex and drugs and rock and roll. I mean, it is. They, well, they don't have drugs, but they have alcohol, and that'll do. All right? Uh, they don't have rock and roll, but they have tragedy, which messes with your emotions in at least an equal way. All right, and they, um, I'm gonna put this, uh, both homosexual and heterosexual desire is powerfully influential here. All right, in other words, these guys are all full of arrows, mostly for each other, all right? Uh, Phaedrus is in a relationship with, uh, who am I looking at? Oh, no, uh, Phaedrus, and uh, Eryximachus and Pausanias and Agathon are couples. Okay? That's an important part of this. You need to understand that. And then you need to understand that these guys know how to party. Okay? If you've ever gone to a, a big museum that has a good collection of Greek stuff, uh, of course, there are such museums in Greece, in, in Athens in particular, but if you've ever been to something like the, museum of Mar uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which is like the world's attic, it's immense, and all kinds of beautiful stuff from every time and place is there. But the Greek stuff is really great. They have what are called crater bowls. And these are that black ceramic ware with that kind of red illustrations on them. Okay, now a crater bowl has two, hand, has two handles, all right, and it's big. I mean, in other words, it's, it's the size of a, a waste paper basket. I mean, this is a big bowl. Now this, for those who are temperate and reasonable, is an opportunity to mix wine with water. In other words, they water down their wine so that everyone doesn't get sloshed immediately. Right? That's what you do right, if you're having a temperate, um, decorous get-together. This is not a, a temperate, decorous get-together. Now, they said specifically, last night we were all wrecked. And as a matter of fact, Eric Zimicus, the doctor, says, look, I'm so hungover now, and I, I just can't drink anymore. What about you guys? And they'll say, no, no, we're really looking bad. I, mean, I just can't look at wine. Wow. And look, any of you are acting like you've never had a hangover before. I do not believe it. <laughs> I do not believe this. Um, but you know, well, that's a mistake. Whatever you have, good for you. We shall see. But my point is that these guys are still hungover the next day. All right. Now, a crater bowl holds more than a gallon. I mean, these things are big. And when you drink at one of these symposia, first you have a meal, all right, that way you get a little more mileage out of the wine, and then the host will call for the slaves to bring in a crater bowl full of wine. And you start with the good stuff, and then you work down to the, the rock gut. Right? But the good stuff you can taste, right? because it's going to be in the first bowl. Now, when you drink this, this is not like having a glass of wine, or a sip of wine, it doesn't work that way. Instead, what you do is you grab both handles of this crater bowl, and you lean back on it, so that the wine is running down the side of your face, and your first, dra your first drink 
all right, would be, let's say, something in the area of an entire bottle of wine. Now, tonight, they haven't mixed the wine and the water because they're intending to get sloshed. But they say, look, we're just going to do this for uh, refreshment. Instead, we're going to think deep thoughts. Okay. So what's polite, then, is that you lean back with this thing. And if it's too heavy, the, the slaves will actually help you. And essentially, what you're doing is pouring as much alcohol down your throat as you, can, as you conceivably can. In other words, there's no frat party that can touch this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but worse. Wine has more alcohol than beer. Okay, so yeah, a kegger, this is an ancient kegger. That's a good way of looking at it. So what we have here is the cream of the crop of, Ar of Athens. This is the intellectual elite. These are heavy hitters. These are influential men. These are men of repute, men who are generally respected. Okay, so the uh, host is the first one to lean back on this thing, and then he puts it down. And believe me, if you just knock back an entire bot not a glass, but a bottle of wine, um, that takes some digesting, it takes some work, All right? But you then pass it to the guy on your right. He is expected to do what you did, all right? You know that you can't wimp out, and this will go on and on until everybody's completely unconscious. So you pass this thing around and everybody gets, all right, a belly full of wine. And then you put it down and then you pass it over to the next guy, right? So going around the circle and everybody is lying down. So it makes it easy once you've had your fill, you just crash because you're in a bed. This works out great. I mean, these guys know their stuff. All right, so you're passing around this gigantic waste paper basket full, well, ceramic with Greek stuff on it, but it's a waste paper basket full of wine, all right? And then, once you pass it around and everybody's had theirs, you fill it again, or the slaves fill it again. You're not gonna be ambulatory very soon. So, um, the slaves will fill it again, all right? And they will do this, and do this, and the peer pressure is very strong. You, you, in other words, you can't be a wimp and say, look, I've had enough. There's no such thing as enough for these guys. That's an important clue as to their psyche. These are men that lack moderation. They are not able to restrain themselves. Yeah? Just out of curiosity, what is our historical source for uh, what symposiums look like? Oh, um, they have Greek paintings. Not uh, Some of them are actually on crater bowls of guys hanging around, passing around a crater bowl, right? And so it's pretty clear what this is for, all right? It's a ceremonial instrument. And if we're going to be restrained, we put water and wine together, it's hard to get drunk. On the other hand, this good, strong stuff with no water in it, you can get drunk on this pretty fast, particularly if you're not having a glass, you're having a bottle with every shot, right? I mean, you're really putting it down. It's a good thing these people never had access to distilling. <laughs> I mean, God help us, you know what that would turn out like, right? And it's even better thing, they don't have access to drugs like cocaine. Can you imagine what they would be like like that? Thank God for small favors. So alcohol is the drug they have, and they love it. As a matter of fact, they invented a special god for it, Dionysus, all right? Which shows you that this is an important thing. Not only that, but this comes from the gods, and it's impious not to show the gods proper respect, which means you get hammered. Okay. So, we are passing this thing around. In other words, this is not going to be a serious meeting of the minds between intellectuals that want to exchange ideas. This is going to be a race to see who ends up under the table first and who ends up last. 
right? We're all gonna do our best. Make sure that we pass out early, all right? So these guys can really put it back, all right? In other words, when an Athenian goes drinking, he's gonna have something in excess of half a gallon of wine. It may go all the way to a gallon. Now, if you've ever looked, a wine bottle is actually a fifth. It'd be like drinking five bottles of wine in two hours, which means that you're in bad shape. All right, so this is the ambiance that we have here. And uh, you have to remember that this is going to be, this is part of a multi-day celebration given by Agathon in honor of Agathon. He really likes himself. All right. And uh, everybody tells him what a great guy he is. And in a society where male beauty counts for a lot, he's very handsome. He's young. In other words, he's in some ways the inverse of Socrates, who's old and ugly. He's got a snub face, he's about 5'2", and uh, you know, all he's good at for is asking questions. But he does that pretty well. So Agathon invites his pals, all right? Now, this is full of funny ironies, and you have to read this really carefully. You, here's some advice. You cannot read Plato too carefully. It's true. In other words, there is no one who has a greater command of language than Plato does. And if anything happens, if, you, if, if someone makes a gesture, or somebody drops something, or somebody picks something up, or somebody says something, it always means something. In other words, it's tempting when you first start reading Plato to kind of rip through to get to the, point, the good stuff. Okay, here's the deal. It's all the good stuff. In other words, if you are flipping the pages saying, let's get to what's really going on, you are missing what's really Okay, every Socratic dialogue starts with a frame scene. We start in some particular circumstance. In this case, we're hearing it third hand, right? Socrates was there with a guy named Aristodemus, his friend, who was described as a funny looking but nice guy. Um, in Greek, Aristodemus means best of men. Aristodemos. Okay. The word, uh, many of the names in the dialogues matter. They tell you something. Okay? All right. So Aristodemus gets invited by Socrates to somebody else's party. And on the way, Socrates begins thinking deep thoughts, and Socrates is in good shape tonight. He's gone to the baths, which he rarely does, and he's put on shoes. He's wearing sandals, which get described early on. Now, the fact that Socrates is wearing sandals may strike you as irrelevant. Actually, it's hugely important. Everything that goes on in that frame scene means something. So, Socrates is there thinking deep thoughts. Aristodemus says, can we go to the party? And Socrates says, go on without me. I'm thinking deep thoughts. So he thinks deep thoughts. Aristodemus goes in. Agathon meets him because he's all, the rest of the guys are already there. And he says, oh, Aristodemus, I'm so glad you're here. I meant to invite you, but I couldn't find you yesterday. What it means is that he didn't want Aristodemus here, and there's no decent way of tossing him out. <laughs> right? So he doesn't want to hang around. In other words, the good doesn't hang, want to hang around with the best of men. All right. Again, you see how subtle that is. I mean, always be reading and looking for the irony. Oh, Aristodemus, just the guy I want to see. And by the way, where's Socrates? He's back there thinking. All right, so yeah. All right, so they have a dinner. All right. And uh, they decide that they're not going to get drunk tonight. 
which is probably a good idea. If you are still hungover from the night before, you should always involve, uh, refrain from hitting liquor again the second night. You'll only feel worse. All right? So they say, you know what? I was really drunk last night. You were really drunk last night. He was really, we're all really drunk last night. Why don't we not get drunk tonight? Okay. This, of course, is famous last word. <laughs> and not just for them. <laughs> it's funny how things percolate that way, but yeah. They decide not to get drunk, and then by the end, they're all hopeless. All right. As a matter of fact, the last, Socrates is the last two guys Socrates is talking to are Ariston and, and uh, or Agathon and Aristophanes, and both of them, while he's, you know, this is, this is four or five in the morning, they're still drinking, passing around the crater bowl. Socrates never gets drunk no matter how much he drinks. That's symbolic. Right? On the other hand, Agathon and Aristophanes slide off their couches under the table, and Socrates puts blankets on them and says, get some sleep, boys. <laughs> then he looks at the rising sun and says his prayers and goes back to his work asking people questions and making a pest of himself in the Agora. Now, saying his prayers to the sun, the sun means the same thing in all the Platonic dialogues. I assume you've read the Republic. The sun is the form of the good. That's what sun, the sun always means the same thing in all the dialogues. Right? The dialogues are, in fact, one gigantic unified work. Um, it's a little, the Platonic dialogues taken as a whole are a little bit like a golf course. There are 18 holes. Well, in this case, there are 28 di or 35 dialogues. Uh, I think that's the number that's canonical. But whatever it is, um, if you really want to understand Plato, you've got to play all the holes. That's what playing, playing golf involves. And it's a giant ironic odyssey and a giant ironic Iliad. Fair enough. Okay. So they decide that they're going to remain sober. All right. And uh, they said, why don't we have a discussion? We got Socrates here, this is a good idea. Let's talk about love. And what they mean by love here is the term they're using is eros, not agape, not philia. So this is sexual desire. All right. And no, it seems no one has given a proper encomium. An encomium is a speech of praise. No one has given a proper speech of praise about love. So they say, why don't we, because you've got to remember, at least two of the, or four of the men here are lovers, all right? And uh, the rest of them, we'll see. But uh, they're going to talk about love. And Phaedrus is going to start out. Phaedrus is a young man, all right? He's handsome. He's well, he's well connected. He has a, a wealthy family. And uh, he's not all that quick. I mean, he's a nice young man, and if you ever get a chance, you should read the dialogue called The Phaedrus. It's one of the most beautiful things ever written. It's not as big and extensive as this, but it's a small, flawless gem. All right? I mean, in other words, The Phaedrus really is worth reading. Right? It's, one of the, it's one of the greatest things that Plato produced. It's not as big, but it's perfect, and it does what it does so beautifully that you'll, it'll change your life if you read it right. Okay, so Phaedrus gives a speech and he says, you know what? Men who are involved in homosexual relationships do not want to appear bad to their beloved. So if you put them both in the army, they don't run away. And if their beloved is threatened, they fight like tigers. So this is the great advantage of Eros. You know, 
just want to remind you that there are people uh, presenting. Oh, yeah, I know. Okay, good. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, wow, 45 minutes. Damn, time goes fast. Yeah. I'm the one that needed to leave early. Okay, well. Go. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Give us the feedback. That's a five page. And then please get the notes from somebody else. Or if you want to come to my office, I'll find it somewhere. It's all. and the age of love, he said, not only is love the chiefest author and giver of virtue in life, as he says, but it is a god. He described love as a mighty god and the eldest of the gods. He says, love is the source of the greatest benefits to us. Loving and being loved are enormously beneficial for virtue and even for success, uh, like, you know, in the war. Uh, love is the principal guide of the man who wishes to live nobly. It's better, it's a better guide than speaks of it especially as a great guide for youth beginning their adult lives. Uh, so he says, uh, for I know not any greater blessing to a young man who is beginning life than a virtuous lover, or to the lover than the beloved youth. This is because of how love increases acts of honor. A person wouldn't ever want his beloved to see him do anything that was dishonorable. Which I find this particular argument interesting um, for how great love is Total self-sacrifice. 
he shows this in comparing Alcestis to Orpheus, who sought for his love, but only after she had died. Uh, he kind of calculates how he can still be with her without having to die himself. He calls this kind of calculation cowardly. Uh, he also speaks of Achilles and Patroclus uh, too. Um, when he's describing this kind of love, uh, it kind of makes us ask if he's speaking only of romantic love here. And he sees romantic love hasn't been invented yet. This is about sexual desire. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, or well, I was thinking, or if he just sees them as friends loving each other, you know? Uh, I wasn't sure, but after what you've just said about Phaedrus, I didn't know that. Um, maybe he is saying that they had a homosexual relationship, but I don't know. Um, he does say, nevertheless, he, Achilles, uh, gave his life to revenge his friend and dared to die, not only in his defense, but after he was dead. So that part makes me think that he thinks that the love between Patroclus and Achilles is more of a brotherly type of thing. That's not what he means by friend, it's sex. Okay, gotcha. Um, he also makes sure to point out that Achilles is the one who was the beloved of Patroclus. I don't know why he does that, because he was younger and better looking. It's just a good thing he's done that. Characteristically, middle-aged men who are already married and are of considerable estate and influence will take teenage boys before they get to the point where their, their voice begins to break and they get a full beard. Um, and at that age, young boys, are, or not boys, but young adolescent boys, um, are thought to be most attractive. Right? So this is a kind of pedophilia, or what we would call pedophilia nowadays. display great uh, deeds of heroism and honor, and it's proclaiming that it's the inspiration of love that, that causes them. The bond of love between people is what causes great acts of heroism. Uh, it's also interesting that he doesn't mention sexual desire in his speech just explicitly and obviously. He talks about heroic, self-sacrificing acts of love, but there's nothing about sex. These are my reasons for affirming that love is the eldest and noblest and mightiest of the gods and the chiefest author and giver of virtue and life and of happiness after death. So. Very good, thank you. Go ahead. Can we make all your books your presentation? Yeah. And then we'll close So Pausanias, he was the second one, and um, he he kind of looks more towards like homosexuality. He talks a lot about it. Um, he thinks that eros or love in it itself is neither a good or a bad thing. It's just like how you go about that. So like, if one is loving in a good intention, then that's where eros can be good. And then he talks about if someone is loving in a bad intention, then then it's seen in a bad way. So he doesn't really necessarily give praise and arrows in and of itself, but he kind of sees it as like what good arrows is and what bad arrows is. And I'll get to that with Aphrodite, his forms of Aphrodite. <clears throat> so Pausanias points out that there's two kinds of Aphrodite. And through doing this, he, um, it kind of shows that they still have a connection with the gods and that they rely on the gods for their source of what things are on, on earth. Like they they sh they're still relying on the gods to tell them what eros is. They're still relying on the gods to tell them like kind of what virtue is, virtue is, 
and he's not really coming up with it on his own per se, but he kind of uses the gods to talk about that. So um, the first Aphrodite that he talks about is common Aphrodite, and he refers to it as Aphrodite like Pandemus, which is related with common love, and he sees this as like the bad form of Eros and the bad form of love. Um, he thinks common love is bad because it is directed towards the body, the bodies and the minds, um, and is more like utility, so it's like more used for physical gratification than for for furthering one um, for further one's knowledge or like a, an emotional connection. And he believes that those who are motivated by common love are as equally interested in both women and boys. And um, he says this because most of the time, like, um, they portray the men in the women's relationship as more of just a physical gratification and not, and not this, like, emotional connection. And he sees that as a common love and a bad form of love. And then in terms of boys, like we just mentioned, um, he sees common love in a bad way portrayed, like, where the men kind of use the boys when they're younger and not as intelligent because they know they can trick them and, and get what they want out of it because the boys are younger and not as smart. So he sees that as common love and the, the improper use of eros. Um, and on, page, on the bottom of page 10, he says, those who are the same uh, sort of as this eros are, first of all, no less in love with women than with boys. Secondly, they're in love with their bodies rather than the souls. And third, they are, they are in love with the stupidest um, there can be, for they have an eye only to act and are unconcerned with what is noble or not. So he criticizes those who take advantage of women or young boys for their sexual, sexual gratification, and he thinks this gives a bad name to love, and he even says that there should be um, laws made against it. Um, and then that brings you, that the, this quote brings me to the second um, form of love that he thinks is better, which is heavenly love. And he talks about how uh, it's named after heavenly, uh, or it's Aphrodite Uranium, and it's named after uh, Uranus because he was the first supreme ruler of the universe, and he didn't have a mother, so he thinks heavenly love is um, maybe is only directed towards males. So um, he thinks that this kind of love is felt more for uh, men who are mature and intelligent, um, with whom Pausanias thinks like a lifelong relationship is possible because it's not just that instant physical gratification; it's more. It's more focusing on intelligence and shared wisdom and knowledge between the two. And he thinks men can really only do that with each other. Um, and uh, on page 12, there's a quote. Uh, he says, let, uh, let one just reflect that it is said to be a finer thing to love openly than in secret, and particularly to love the noblest and best, even if they're the uglier ones. So this kind of shows that... Uh, loving someone just for the looks is not the right way and to love them for for uh, in other ways like maturity and this kind of made me think of how Alcibiades I'm sure we'll get to that he was like a supposedly a handsome man and um, he he is portrayed as I think would have heavenly love because he goes after Socrates who is ugly and he goes after him for his wisdom and not just for like the, the looks and the physical gratification um, and then he says that in Greek culture, where there are wise pedestry or sexual activity between a man and a boy is not a bad thing, but to the barbarians it is seen as like inappropriate um, because they're not fully as wise as they are in the Greek culture, so they think they're above others and that they know what they're talking about in terms of eros. So he offers his opinion um, and his definition of love. He talks more about the, love, the lover and the loved one. And uh, he thinks proper love is when the lover makes the loved one good and wise through educating him and teaching him in virtue. And the loved one is, and then the loved one is uh, eager to acquire the wisdom, and they share this together. And this is best done through man and man, like I said. So basically, for Persenius, the main purpose of eros is to produce virtue, 
and um, love pursued by any other means is wrong. And he uses this example um, with a, like a boy who, I think it's up here. He said like someone who, he focuses on the intent. Like if a boy was to try to um, give like gratification to another, inter- like because he wanted money out of it, then that's then that's the wrong intent. And if he is deceived in that way, then it's the boy's fault. But if a boy was gonna give gratification um, to receive wisdom, then and he's still deceived, that's not really the boy's fault. Um, it's still a it's still a bad thing for him, but his intent was good, so he sees that as as the proper form of um, of like love. And then so so I guess his main point um, is the loved one who gratifies his lover in hopes of gaining virtue partakes in heavenly love, while gratification in any other ways is just common love. So it's easier to seduce beautiful young men. So regardless of what the guy says about this heavenly Aphrodite, um, the, the, uh, this worldly Aphrodite, the earthly Aphrodite, is otherwise known as cult of heterosexuality, and it produces people, right? But he says, that's not the real thing. The real thing is the heavenly Aphrodite. And that's what I do when I chase young teenage boys. Now what we really need to do is change the nobles, change the conventions and athletes, so it's easier for me to seduce these boys without having the parents get intrigued. In other words, um, they're in the Kantian sense, this is heteronymous. He is being driven by a passion that he is keeping secret. And passion is for sexual gratification with beautiful boys, which is what he has with Agathon. So Pausanias is funny because he says, look, if you were to do the stuff we do for money or for political power or for any kind of position, that would be really bad. But if you do it for Eros, that makes it really good. What he's doing is saying, look, um, I do stuff which anybody would call bad, but because I do it for Eros, it's not really bad. You just don't understand. So yeah, uh, the irony here is pretty thick. And you have to understand the backstory in order to see what's going on here, right? Clearly, he had uh, uh, his first homosexual liaison is not with Agathon. He's done it many times before, and he always says, "Well, it's because I'm pursuing wisdom and I want to give these young men wisdom." What he wants to have sex. What he wants is to have sex with early adolescent boys. Right. So does he? I'm. I was kind of confused on this. Like he sees it wrong. Um, between like man and man and boy, if they're less intelligent, but it's correct if the boy is seeking wisdom, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Does Agathon strike you as a seeker of wisdom? Isn't he the guy that when Socrates starts asking questions about speech says, "Look, Socrates, let's get on with it. I can talk to you anytime." Yeah. Again, that's not a throwaway line. He doesn't. He's not a seeker after wisdom. He doesn't want to have a Socratic dialectic at the end of the speech. He says, "Look, I can talk to you anytime." Let's get down to business and let's have some speeches. So uh, the irony here is that what he says motivates him and what really motivates him are entirely separate. So this is an attempt to change Nomos. And he's been influenced by the sophists. The sophists in mind with the Next we get a fine little interruption. Aristophanes begins to hiccup. Now, this is Plato crushing Aristophanes, but 
but doing it in a very elevated way. Look, the spasm of hiccuping is something that takes over your body and you can't avoid it. Right? This is the emblem of Aristophanes' life. All right? Now, he could have him throw up or puke or piss on himself, but Plato's an aristocrat. He's, a, he's nothing if not a gentleman, and he wouldn't write a thing like that. Aristophanes would write a thing like that. So he says, look, I'm going to put in the hiccuping, but you all know what I mean. As he says, Aristophanes is well known as a devotee of Aphrodite and Dionysus. Now, it sounds like that's really religious, but in fact, what it means is a drunk and a skirt chaser. All right. He's God, in other words, no moderation, and he may be a gifted poet, which we're going to find out he actually is. Very interesting myth he comes up with. But the idea is that Aristophanes is not in control of himself. He needs a doctor to have him do whatever he does to get rid of the hiccups. But the problem is he needs a doctor to take care of much more than the hiccups. And for that, there's no doctor around. Go ahead. Good. Your exhibitus is next. He's our doctor.
it seems sort of a dig at Pausanias and his like want to like undermine the whole law with the young boys and everything. Um, but he, I mean, in plain text, he's kind of talking about how harmony needs to be kept in everything. Um, and then, he, of course, since he's a doctor, he talks about medicine um, and how it connects to Eros itself and how it brings harmony and health and goodness. Um, he says, in the case of men's bodies taken by themselves, it is a fine and needful thing to gratify the good and healthy things of each body. For the art of medicine is, to sum it up, the expert knowledge of the erotics of the body in regard to repletion and evacuation. Um, he who induces changes so as to bring about the acquisition of one kind of love in place of the other, and who in whatever things were there, and in whatever things where there is no love, there but there must needs be would be so um, Eros, in its true form he's talking about, is the bringing of everything to health and goodness. Um, and it's like, when Eros is used for good, the noble love, it's, it's the purest form of it is bringing the best for the person who is the loved and the lover. Um, and when we cater to our noble sense of love, which is wisdom and intelligence rather than pure animalistic tendencies, it brings about a higher sense of humanity and self. Um, and therefore we're bettering ourselves through this uh, noble eros. Um, so with this noble eros, we it's, uh, just bring everything else to goodness and harmony, which is kind of Eric's and this is what. Okay, good job. Key thing that you need to know about Eric Simicus, he's a doctor, and that means he's operating in the tradition of pre-Socratic physics, right? Remember that Hippocratic medicine is probably what he is from, from the Hippocratic school is science 2.0 applied to medicine. So we don't do any more magic spells. We actually look for and observe uh, patterns in disease. Now, the irony here is this. All right? He is digging at Pausanias because he wants to raise his own status with the available young men. All right? uh, and, he, and one of his rivals for the affections of these young men is a guy like Pausanias, who's a notorious lecher. Okay, the irony here is he says, look, health in the Hippocratic school is a harmony of opposites. In other words, you have earth, air, fire, and water, and you have to maintain the proper proportions of them in your body. If the proportions get out of whack, that's what disease is. That's what being sick or, or you know, and well, that would cause your death. So what you want to do is have a harmonious uh, connection of opposites. The irony here, is that homosexuality is not the harmonious connection of opposites. It's the harmonious conception of this connection of the same. Heterosexuality is, in fact, the harmonious connection of opposites. But that doesn't enter into this. So look, he is trying to give an excuse for his own homosexual affair with uh, Phaedrus. And also, um, what he wants to say is that although health is the unity of opposites, to be sexually healthy is to like 13-year-old boys. Again, just leave that hanging there. It's very clear that there's an irony here. Remember, he's the guy who says early on, I figured out uh, that drinking to excess is really bad for you. I'm still hungover, and I'm a doctor. I know what's bad for you. For you. Well, if you are a doctor and know what's bad for you and what's good for you, why are you hungover today? And why are we all going to get wrecked later on? 
right? It's not the harmony of opposites. Here we have a dissonance of the same. Right? Okay. Next to Eric Simmons, put pre-Socratic physics. That's the big target there. All right. Next we get Aristophanes. Who's going to present him? Now this is a big speech, and this is actually a pretty complicated, interesting speech. Go to work, Paul. Plato clearly understands what made Aristophanes so um, uh, popular as a uh, comedic playwright. He's funny, and the myth that he gives us is really crude, and I think goes into too much detail about whatever these proto-humans he creates are. Uh, firstly, I mean, we know he can't even deliver his speech at first because he's hiccuping so badly. Um, and the remarks he makes about the human body after he cures it, um, I thought were pretty funny about how the body actually requires such ugly noises, such as uh, sneezing and coughing to cure himself of the hiccups. Um, you can fill in your favorite spasm for these. Yeah. What he's talking about is orgasm and intoxication. Aristophanes starts his speech, I think, pretty well, actually. He talks about how Eros is um, criminally uh, underappreciated and underrated as far as its actual power. He says that um, more statues and more temples would be made if people truly understood the far-reaching uh, effects of Eros. Um, it, it's after this brief little um, praise of Eros that I think things get really weird. He um, tells us he's going to teach us about human nature. It's okay. So he creates this myth. And now I love this myth. I thought this myth was great because it's not founded in any religion. It's not Greek in origin. It's just purely coming out of Aristophanes' hungover mind. And... Um, he tells us that uh, humans, before humans as we know them came, we had these, like, these proto-humans, which were essentially just two people glued together at, on their back. And um, it, he says they have, you know, they have four arms, four legs, two heads, and um, these are just disgusting-sounding creatures. They roll around um, to move cartwheels. They're spherical, and they, they roll around. And um, what... What's interesting is he tells us that there were three sexes instead of two that we know. There's this male, which is two men attached together. There's two females, and then there's one, the androgynous one, which is one male attached to one female. Um, these were, as you would expect, having you know two humans stuck together, were twice as strong as normal humans, and they made this like unified attack on the gods. And so Zeus thinks to himself, well, the only way to stop this without completely destroying them is, well, let's cut them in half. And so this is how we get the humans we know today. And this is where he gets really disgusting. Uh, you, the, their heads and their limbs and their genitalia are all turned towards where the cut was made. And the skin is like stitched back together. And that's where we get our belly button. And it's just gross. <laughs> it's very Aristophanes. <laughs> Sometimes he manages to become pretty poetic, and um, he tells us that uh, 
the attraction of a person towards their lover, whether it be of the same sex or another sex, it doesn't really matter to him, is their significant other. And it's this significant other that makes them quite literally whole. Um, this concept is actually, I mean, it's even present in like Christianity, where the one man and one woman will become one flesh. In this sense, quite literally one flesh. Um, but it's this... Uh, it's this definition of love that I think is not uh, touched upon by the previous uh, speakers. I mean, he tells us love is the name for the desire and pursuit of the whole. So um, the person that you would fall in love with would be the person that makes you as a, a, a whole. Um, he says that, uh, I think that about the different sexualities that arise from the three different sexes of these proto-humans, the two males, their descendants will be homosexual males, and the female ones will be lesbian, the androgynous ones will be heterosexual. Uh, I thought it was really funny that he pointed out that the uh, homosexual males are the ones that become politicians. <laughs> now, not I, I don't know if this is meant to be an insult or not, because sexuality was differently received in ancient Athens, but I thought it was funny when he basically just told us that all politicians are gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I can me a bit. <laughs> right, and I don't know, that, that struck me as really funny. But um, Aristophanes' ultimate message is that uh, Eros is uh, the, uh, the seeking of another person to make yourself more whole of a person. I think it was a pretty thoughtful way of putting Eros, even if it was explained really poorly and grotesquely. Okay, that's a good job, Paul. What you need to know about this speech, first off, put next to it comedy. All right. Second of all, the idea is that he's revealing his understanding of human nature, which is a way of saying he's revealing his understanding of himself. All right. What you love discloses your psyche. Aristophanes thinks people began as impious monsters that tried to attack the gods. And now they're half that. And if they keep being bad, it's just gonna, we're gonna fry them again. They're all gonna hop around with one leg and one arm and have sexually four people all bouncing up and down with half a face. And uh, you know, God knows how this is gonna work. But the idea is, look, we were monstrous to begin with and we were impious. We tried to take over the realm of the gods. And defeated at that, we were now turned into something that's partial, incomplete, and the arrows that we have that drives us, as he says, must never be withstood. In other words, there are people for whom libido is the most important thing in the world. And I don't mean, I mean, Aristophanes is clearly one of those, but there are actually, it's not such an unusual thing. If any of you know uh, early 20th century literature, somebody like D.H. Lawrence, any of you know who that is? All right, he's a novelist who's convinced that sex is nirvana and that all of our lives revolve around the need for errors. Um, what it is is a way of saying that errors should never be misunderstood or should never be withstood, all right? So um, this is something that is going to be actually quite popular in history. We do not, the, the, the justification for human life and the value of human life lies in libido. Right? There are actually no shortage of people that believe that. Uh, some of the romantics were like that, right? Lord Byron was a genuinely great poet, 
he was actually kind of a social pariah because he carried on a long-term incestuous relationship with his half-sister. Arabs, I said, he withstood the FBI, you know. Good job, Paul. Remember that he's a devotee of Dionysus and Aphrodite, which should explain to you what's going on here. Right? He's a drunk in a lecture. Yeah. Um, you think of any of that in like Freud's ideas? Oh yeah, Freud is another good example of that. People are happy when they gratify their desires. This is libido uberalis. What I love about this is that Plato wrote this. Mm -hmm. He's like, you think you can do comedy? Like, I'm going to go do comedy. Right. It's going to be just as good as Aristotle. This is a parody of Aristotle. And look, he's a talented poet. Plato's acknowledgement, saying, look, you have to be pretty talented to think this up. On the other hand, you have to be really twisted to actually believe the things that are the foundation of this, of this story. Yeah. I can't tell if like, they think like love between man and man or like homosexuality is a good thing, because half of this is like comedic and ironic, and then the other half is like seriously, like how they're seriously trying to display arrows. Um, in Aristophanes, it's not I mean, it's, it's often not clear whether he's serious or not. And because he's so twisted and so mistaken about the proper ordering of the soul, it doesn't ultimately make any difference because he's wrong, wrong, wrong. But in, but in general, though, like in the whole symposium. He's not rejecting homosexuality. He doesn't think it's any better or worse than heterosexuality. Right? Plato doesn't think No, Pl well, Plato, I mean, that's a separate When Aristophanes I was talking about. Yeah. Plato is, I mean, I'm not able to understand him as anything in other words, Plato is gay, gay, gay. And you know, you've, you've been reading the dialogues. Um, whenever Plato talks about beauty, it's always beautiful boys. Right? Heterosexual men, that doesn't pop into the head when you say beauty. It does for Plato. Right? On the other hand, Plato, by the time we get to the Phaedrus, and also um, his final dialogue, The Laws, he prohibits homosexuality. So he says, look, this is contrary to nature. He's looking for making a natural law argument. And um, in, the, in the laws, not only is homosexuality uh, prohibited in the you know, next best, second best ideal city, but it's in the same context as incest and adultery. So there's no doubt whatever that, that Plato is deeply homosexual, but he has misgivings about having the bronze part of your soul take over. That's why he puts it in Aristophanes' mouth that the bronze is always in charge. Yeah. So is is Plato here also giving like an offhand, like critical account of mythology in general? Look, you said anybody can invent a story. Look at this nitwit. Right? This is a really good story. Aristophanes is a genuine poetic poet. If he, if he didn't, he wouldn't have been so damn destructive. So, I mean, remember that uh, uh, Socrates says in the Apology, you're all been poisoned uh, in your opinion of me because you saw me in a comedy. This is the comedy we're talking about. So Aristophanes is, uh, is a deeply disordered soul. And the fact that he has poetic ability is what makes him dangerous. When we get to the Republic, we start kicking out the poets. Aristophanes will be very high on that list of people that are going to get banished. All right. Well, of course, I mean Euripides and the Dia they're going. Right. Homer, that's got to go. I mean, a whole bunch of things have to go. But Aristophanes, what he's doing here, what Plato's doing here, is writing a parody of Aristophanes, saying, "Look, you're a joker. I'm a joker too. But you, yours is low comedy. All right. Idiot, three stooges comedy. 
I mean, I think it's funny. I, I like institutions. On the other hand, Plato is another kind of comedy. And this is the most elevated comedy. This is high comedy. This is a comedy of ideas. He said, look, remember, Plato's writing this around the 380. Socrates has been dead almost 20 years. And he hears that the Athenians lost the Peloponnesian War. So their city got destroyed, and the Spartans killed a lot of people, and there was a tremendous amount of destruction. And if you remember the story of Alcibiades and the Sicilian expedition, the Athenians did this to themselves. All right. This is Plato's examination of the Athenian elite. They're drunks, they're lechers, they're, um, they're unrestrained libido. Masks a lack of wisdom. All right. Now remember, Plato in 380 is writing this. What he's hearing is these rumors going around. Socrates was the teacher of Alcibiades. And Alcibiades is the one who tricked us all into invading Sicily and getting our society destroyed. So it's a good thing that the Persians finally killed Alcibiades, but that's Socrates. He was a wicked man because he corrupted the youth of Athens. Now, Plato is listening to this, and Plato does not suffer fools gladly. And what he sees going on here is the worst element, the ones who actually see survive the fall of Athens, now have the temerity to say, it's a good thing this wasn't our fault. Rather, this was the fault of that wicked Socrates who corrupted Alcibiades, who hoodwinked us, which called this because of the destruction of the city. Look at what these two guys did to this immense city, 50,000 people. Okay, now Socrates asks in the Apology, am I the only one who corrupts the city? And Neopelagus says, yeah, only you. Everybody else is making the city better. <laughs> <laughs> now, you gotta remember that cross-examination of Melodus, if you've ever seen this, you should look it up on YouTube, but uh, there's a great little cartoon about it. It's called uh, Bambi versus Godzilla. <laughs> right? And I mean, it's about that close, the cross examination. I mean, it takes two pages, and it's the most completely devastating cross examination you are ever going to see. The kid knows Jack. <laughs> and um, Socrates proves this in nine different ways in two pages. <laughs> and then he says, Well, um, I still think you're guilty of something. <laughs> and then they convict <laughs> God, you don't know who's worse, the plebeians, who are nitwits, or the elite, who are halfwits. And the halfwits explain things to the nitwits, but they never get things right, so they end up invading Sicily. <laughs> now, we're looking around trying to find somebody to blame 20 years later. And some nitwit says to the halfwits, is it really true that Socrates is the guy who destroyed our city? And said, yeah, he was really bad. He was the teacher of, Aristotle, of Alcibiades. And Alcibiades led us down the path to destruction. Okay, Plato says, hold on, I I'm not gonna just take a swing at you now because that would just bloody your nose today. Instead, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna write up a dialogue about the people that were running Athens. In particular, Socrates and Alcibiades. And here's the deal. Socrates taught as many people as he could, but Alcibiades wouldn't listen. And so the, guy who, the, the people who corrupted Alcibiades are you, not Socrates. 
And when you voted with Alcibiades, that was your fault too. So let me help you out here. The people that destroyed Athens are not Alcibiades and Socrates. The people that destroyed Athens are the elite, the guys who were calling the shots. And they were drunks, and they were lecherous, and they were grossly immoral, disordered souls. So Plato says, look, I'm not going to take a swing at you and blow your nose. Instead, I am going to write a satire of you and your opinions and your conduct. And it's going to last forever. And I'm going to flog you until the end of time. Right. You know, that Plato was really pissed off at these guys. Yeah. Was this meant to be read by citizens of Athens, or was this just a testament so that other people can look at what happened? Um, it, it could have been read by citizens of Athens, but probably was read, was read by only a small few. Plato has the academy in Athens at this time, but uh, he only lets in those he thinks are teachable, and there are a great many of them. On the uh, mantle of the uh, academy, before you go in, right, on the doorpost, it says, let it, no one enter who has not studied geometry. Why? Because mathematics is what makes you smart, and that's real knowledge. And I'll get to that when we do the Republic. But the point is this. This is Plato having a go at writing comedy. Right? And his comedy right, does not involve having a lizard crap on Aristotle. <laughs> or um, uh, having Aristophanes talk about the sound that a gnat makes and finding out that it comes from the gnat's butt. Oh. <laughs> um, Plato just—he's not going to lower himself. That. He's nothing if not a gentleman. So he says, "Look, I'm going to talk about hiccuping and sneezing." But for those of you that read with discernment, it's very clear what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that Aristophanes, his whole life is a series of spasms. Like he can't control himself. He can't shut up. He can't, he said, look, it's a good thing that you're never supposed to restrain your libido because I never do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, of course, Eros must never be withstood. Thank you for your contributions, Aristophanes. And he said, why don't you sit down? All right. So you have to understand that this is an example of the highest of high comedy. And that's why I had you read Aristophanes. You can't appreciate what's going on here unless you know who Aristophanes is and what he does to Socrates. This is Plato evening story. He said, look, my comedy is much more pointed than yours because I know what I'm talking about. Also, because I'm not a creature of libido. I can actually think. And have you thought about this? You know who's responsible for destroying Athens? Athens. The guys who are leading it are not, are not fit to lead any society. There's a great idea that comes out of the Republic, and this is something you should think about, particularly given our current political crisis. Plato holds the view, and I believe he's right, that he holds the view that no man is fit to govern other people until he learns to govern himself. That's actually a detail set. That's one of the basic ideas of the Republic. Rulers must have self-control and temperance along with various other virtues. Without that, you get this. All right. Okay, who's going to do, uh, oh, well, there's a Socratic interruption. Go ahead up. But uh, Agathon wants to speak. So he says, Socrates, will you stop asking questions and making objections to this? We can listen to you anytime. We want, it's time for me to talk. Okay, Agathon, go ahead and talk. He's not a seeker of wisdom. He's a seeker of praise. He's incredibly vain. Go ahead. Okay, so I'm presenting on... Louder. I'm presenting on Agathon's speech. So, 
over we then pray to Eros, which he says is the, the fall gods, the youngest, um, beautiful, good, and the happiest of all gods. And so it is a way of seeking self-praise because he is like, by praising Eros and saying it's the best, he's self-praising. And he is known to be a beautiful young man. So really he just goes on and gives a speech about how great he is himself. And um, <coughs> doesn't really talk about the effect that Eros has, but just uses it as something to go on and say how great Eros is and how um, Eros does no injustice and has no injustice done unto it, but that it's just the best. Um, and then when he finishes going on, everyone praises him a lot and says, like, oh wow, how beautiful his speech was. He really knows a lot about arrows and he can say so much about what it is. And so Socrates like plays along and says like, oh yeah, you did a good job. It seems like you know a lot about it. So now can I ask you some questions about your speech? And of course then once he starts questioning him, it shows that Agathon really knows nothing <laughs> about arrows. So Socrates starts by asking is love a love of something or not? And Agathon says, well, yeah, love is a love of something. And he says, if it's a love of something, is that a desire for something? And Agathon has to agree, a love of something is a desire of something. And Socrates says, so is a love of something you desire it? Does that mean that the love has it? And they conclude that no, that means that a love, it must not have it. It's the love for it. It's lack of it, so they want to fulfill it. And so Socrates says, well, you said that love seeks beauty, so that means that love must not have beauty, but you define love as being the most beautiful thing. So then at that point, Agathon realizes he's like, oh, I didn't really know what I was talking about, and let's just move on. <laughs> and he doesn't really want to address him. He says, I, I kind of challenge Socrates. Um, he's too, like, I'm not going to even bother to challenge him. And Socrates has an interesting like, last line. He says it's not hard at all to challenge Socrates. I thought it was interesting because Socrates isn't saying that he knows what Eros is either or um, knows what any of the answers to the questions he, are that he asks. Like as we've talked about before, Socrates thinks that he's only the wisest man because he knows that he doesn't know things. So he says it's not hard. Socrates says about himself, it's not hard at all to challenge Socrates. And he's just asking these questions to try to get Agathon to say something about what Eros is, but he isn't claiming that he himself knows what it is. Very good. Agathon, the good, doesn't want to think. All right. It is worth noting that Agathon is a student of Gorgias. Yeah, remember when we did the Sophist? Nothing to be known, nothing uh, is, nothing to exist, nothing to be known, nihilist. Okay. What Aristotle, what Gorgias did was teach Agathon and other students uh, one general catch all encomium for all possible topics. All right. So he said, whenever you're praising something, you can, in other words, you can write the encomium out and just leave in blanks, like in a legal form. And then you write in whatever it is you're praising, and you have a ready-to-go 
speech. Now, Socrates says, you know, one of the interesting things about your speech is that you could cut these paragraphs up right, into separate paragraphs, and then you could throw them up in the air and take them in any random order, and they'd be just as good as the speech you made. Socrates says, that's great. <laughs> right. you, have, you have been studying with Gorgias. You can see that. Shows. And of course, the last line again you can't read Plato too carefully. Right. Plato cuts Agathon's throat, and he does it so quickly and so deftly that his head is still on his shoulders. <laughs> so, I mean, he's dead and doesn't know it. Look at this last line. You have to think about what this is. All right. Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Agathon took his seat, continued Aristodemus, and this is the way it works in Greek, too. This is the word order. The word order matters. Agathon took his seat, continued Aristodemus, Aristodemus, amid a burst of applause, for we all felt that his youthful eloquence did honor to himself as well as the God. His encomium, his speech on love, is a speech about how much he loves himself. This is utterly narcissistic. Every quality that's attributed to Eros here is actually a quality of him. So what he's doing is giving a speech about how much he loves himself. And he says, of course, that's the kind of thing you could do with a Gorgian education. All right. On the other hand, although you think you're really lovely, you're a tragic writer, put next to this tragedy. All right. and, uh, Socrates has some misgivings about the influence of tragedy on public life, which Agathon does not share, because Agathon thinks Agathon is great. Agathon is in love with Agathon. Agathon, people should, Agathon thinks people should be clapping for him, and he thinks he's the greatest tragedy writer that he's ever seen. Yeah? Yeah, so um, Socrates, uh, he, it looks like he's a sophist when he, because he he, convinced, he shows how what the other person thought was love wasn't really love. Mm -hmm. But um, is it the fact that he himself doesn't claim to know what love is? Is that what really separates him from the song? Well, I mean, when we get to the speech, it's going to seem like he may know a little bit more about love than he lets on. And you always have to remember, when Socrates speaks, he either means what he says, or he means exactly the opposite of what he says because he's being ironic. And there are passages in the Platonic dialogues that even the best Platonists argue about themselves. And the difference between them is as enormous as it could possibly be, because it either means X or not X, nothing in between. And sometimes, and this is one of the things that really cook your brain when you're reading Plato, sometimes he means both literally and ironically. In other words, he means X and not X, which would just make you crazy to try and track that down. So um, what Socrates says, he doesn't know anything. Take that with a grain of salt. When Socrates says all knowledge is but recollection, well, maybe. And then again, maybe you just need some story to enter publicly. <laughs> right. um, it's hard to know exactly how to interpret Socrates. One of the reasons why he's a permanent fixture of our intellectual life is that this is inexhaustible. I mean, nobody knows for sure what's going on in Socrates' brain. Does he have a dime on his old book, or is he putting us on? I don't know. I actually suspect he has a dime on. And nowadays, if you say, um, I'm hearing voices, and they tell me what not to do, um, you're a candidate for psychotherapy, right? Back then, that was a divine sign. I told you what you're supposed to do, or what you were not supposed to do. So again, I don't know what goes on in Socrates' mind. Um, he's not exactly human, right? Plato 
understand how his mind works. He's a great artist and also a great philosopher. But Socrates, as Alcibiades says in his speech, he does not love the way we do. I don't know what to make of Socrates. He's enigmatic, permanently so. Um, so now, we've gotten Agathon's speech, and now we're going to get what should be the last speech of the set. I mean, we don't expect uh, Alcibiades to show up. But, so now we're going to get what ought to be the, pet, the ultimate speech of the uh, dialogue. Who's going to do that? Go ahead. You've taken Alcibiades. Good for you. Go ahead. I'd love to see a, a copy of Plato with all of the notes on it. Very good sign. Your, your copy of Plato should be a holy mess, intelligible only to you, given the notes and underlines. Good for you, Plato. Yes, so uh, in, in true Socrates fashion, he begins by gunning down everything that Agathon just said. Yeah. So uh, I love that Agathon is, says, so I guess it looks like I really didn't know what I was talking about. Yes, he had no idea what he was talking about. Um, Socrates then begins to go in what, what struck me as a rather bizarre way to talk about sexual desire. Which is that he goes on to talk about happiness and good and beauty. And he frames love as this sort of nothing void from which we can move towards happiness and good. He uses uh, diotima. Diotima. Yeah, diotima, uh, which I gather means uh, honor to Zeus. Or, uh, it's the honor of God. That's who's fallen in love with. That's what diotima means. And what is, what is the implication about uh, how Socrates views diotima? Well, it could be that diotima isn't really a person. Um, it could be that Socrates has fallen in love with the honor of God. One of the things that I found suspicious about this is that it turns out Diotima teaches using the Socratic method. I thought that <laughs> She's always asking him questions, and then he answers, and then she messes with his answer, and she does what Socrates does to people. And so maybe she's a, an early adopter of the Socratic method, but maybe um, Socrates just made her up for the purposes of giving us a story to compete with that of Aristophanes. Right? So he's fallen in love with the honor of God. He's going to climb the ladder of beauty up to ultimate reality. And uh, this is the only heterosexual image of Eros in the dialogue. Why? Because this is the natural, fruitful sexual desire, as opposed to all the other jokers around him. Okay, go to work. Yeah, so uh, he, he shoots down the idea of love is a god. The gods have beauty and happiness and good, and you don't love what you already have. You love that which you lack. So uh, in a way that seems sort of contradictory to common sense, love is not beautiful and is not good, but it's not ugly or any of these, these other things either. Uh, he puts it also in terms of wisdom and ignorance. Love is not wise, nor is it ignorant. If a person is ignorant, they don't and if you already have wisdom, you're only interested in keeping it. Um, which is sort of, there's, it seemed to be a pretty clear implication that Socrates is, as he says, not wise, but he really isn't ignorant either. Um, he sort of sits with love in the middle between those two things, um, which Alcibiades makes a little more clear later on. Um, so love is a spirit, it's neither divine nor human, uh, it's not beautiful, it's not ugly, 
organized or ignorant, it's something in between them with which a person can go to. What's beautiful, what's happy, what's good. It captures it in terms of this immortality. Once we've got wisdom, we want to hang on to it. Beauty, happiness, we want to hang on to it. And that's his, uh, what really seemed to me a, a tenuous sort of a bridge uh, to sexual love, uh, which is you want to have kids because you're sort of perpetuating yourself. Uh, and this idea of self-perpetuation, the idea that not only physical progeny, but mental progeny being even higher than that. Uh, the first thing, of course, that made me think of was uh, Gilgamesh. Mm -hmm. uh, it made me think certainly of Achilles uh, wanting to, and then of course the comparisons between Socrates and Achilles are, are everywhere in Plato. Um, but yeah, he gives a very sort of a backwards, it seems to me, and kind of a, an unusual way of praising sexual love by talking about philosophy. How about this idea? Sex is the body, but Socratic dialectic is the soul. Socrates spends his life engaged in soul sex. So yeah, he, that's the eros that he has. He has an eros for knowledge, not for other bodies, which is going to really make Alcibiades unhappy. OK? So when you're reading this, this is soul sex for you with Plato. All right. That's why. Well, the point is, philosophy is erotic. Once you have, remember what it says in Alcibiades' speech? Once somebody starts talking to you, it's like that serpent that bites and lets go, but once it's bitten you, it can do anything it wants with you, and you're completely in its charge. That's what happens to a superior kind of intellect when they encounter the Socratic dialogues. It takes over your life and it changes the way you think. In other words, you have an Eros for knowledge and wisdom that you don't even know exists, and yet it pushes you around despite the fact that you don't know it's there. What the Socratic's dialogues do is strip that bear and reveal yourself to you. They reveal to you, yeah, you have a sexual desire for other bodies, but you also have a spiritual desire for knowledge and wisdom. And that longing is far more important. That's the true divine Aphrodite. In other words, Socrates is the most erotic and most seductive human being that's ever existed. And yet, no one is more chaste. What Socrates does when he talks to people, particularly the clarion men like Alcibiades, but the other guys like Phaedrus or anybody, um, Socrates is seducing their minds. And he's not trying to get them to engage in either homosexual or heterosexual conduct, because he's not interested in bodies. Instead, as he says, he's a midwife who helps you give birth to your ideas. So, this is the Eros of the soul, which none of the other guys, previous speakers, talked about. All right? So when you read the Platonic dialogues and you are overcome with the beauty of them, and if you're doing it right, you should, um, what that's doing is tapping into an erotic desire in every human soul for enlightenment and for wisdom. And once you get the first taste of that, you can never get enough. All right, go ahead. Okay. Socrates has a brain book. 
happens in all optics. Mm -hmm. And uh, going up always means the same thing in electronic ions. Going up and down, remember the myth of the cave, remember the divided line. When you're going up, you know where you're going. Outside of space and time and matter, towards pure ideas. Okay. Just one more uh, one line. lovers are people who are looking for their other halves, but as I see it, Socrates' love never longs for either the half or the whole of anything except the good. <laughs> he just, he can't, he can't help himself. You know there's times when you're writing a paper, and you know this, argue, this line doesn't really belong here, but it's such a good line it has to go in. This is what later took. He said, let me flog Aristophanes some more, just in case he's not dead. Right? And it's such a good line. He says, yeah, stick it in and let's move right off. Yeah. Um, I, I just get back just because my thoughts are out of order. Um, but the idea of uh, wanting to perpetuate something that we've already got, uh, this immortality, your, the idea of you living on long after you just is beautiful. And the whole idea here Plato has in regards to Aristophanes is let me make some Aristophanes immortal as a, a joke. Well, he's an immortal idiot, right? He's an immortal uh, follower of Dionysus and Aphrodite. And so he says, look, you set up Socrates and you helped him with it. My revenge on you is that I'm going to leave you alive after I do this. Right? And then you have to live with the fact that you are the one who killed Socrates and you are the nitwit that couldn't stop Nickham. Go ahead. Okay, a couple of things you need to know. First of all, love is the child of craft and necessity. And love is not a god. Love, rather, is a powerful spirit which mediates between heaven and earth. Diotima teaches love to Socrates. She's a priestess, and she represents the divine sort of love the fruitful love. In other words, the mental analog of heterosexuality. This is a product of an orderly soul. And he says, if you find sexual desire in a physical sense for you, wait until I can reveal to you the mental analog of sexual desire and sexual gratification. Once you get a taste of it, nothing else will do. So, uh, love is the child of craft and resource, craft and necessity, and it mediates between heaven and earth, and it's not ugly, but it's not beautiful. It is not a divine thing, but it's a spirit. And it's hardy and tough, and goes around without any shoes. Now what, yeah? Um, that overcoming of the gods, the Promethean impulse to steal the fire of the gods, we got in Aristophanes. Here, in Socrates' account of love, love is not trying to overthrow the gods. Love is trying to mediate between heaven and earth. All right? So it's better than people, but inferior to gods. 
diatima is a feminine image of the search for knowledge and virtue. And she teaches love to Socrates. Socrates she teaches about the ladder of beauty. She starts out seeing the beauty in one body, and then starts out and then moves to seeing the beauty in bodies in general, and then the beauty of ideas, and then on upward to the form of the good, which is the ultimate beautiful thing. So beauty leads us upward. Beauty and our, our love of intellectual beauty, our, our, our erotic desire for intellectual beauty, pushes us upward towards the eternal and the divine. Okay. Uh, as an aside here, one of the things, it comes from the work I've been doing in some of the writing the history of the world, and a lot of people talk about and examine all kinds of things. Here's one possibility. Have you ever seen a, you know, the, the carvings that uh, you know, young lovers put into trees between the boy and uh, John and Jane forever? Right? I, I think that's not so unusual, but we've heard about it. Okay. Um, I understand how Johnny and Jane got into that little part, but where did forever come from? And it's a commonplace in school boy knows it. I think I know the answer. I'm going to take a crack at it. I think that uh, love is an attempt to abolish time. It's a longing for eternity. And that's why any six-year-old who falls in love with Janie is going to put in the essentials there, Johnny, Jamie, and Fred. That's something worth thinking about. Time is the great devourer. Yeah. We cherish the hope that love lasts forever. Or rather, love pushes us in the direction of forever. And what we are in love with is not necessarily Janie, but rather the thing that's reflected in Janie, which is the ultimate good thing. That's the ultimate locus of our errors. The trivial and paltry physical eros that we got with the rest of these guys can't touch this. This is a qualitatively different kind of erotic experience. And once you've tasted it, um, there's no withstanding it. It's far more addictive than heroin will ever be. And you can read that you know exactly what to say. Right, the line that Alcibiades gives us, it, caught, it bites onto any noble, capable young soul and once you've been stung by that serpent, all right, um, your whole life changes and all you're interested in is ultimately getting ultimate knowledge of ultimate reality. In other words, you're trying to abolish time. All right. So, although it may not seem so, that is a giant book of erotic literature. It is. But the Eros is not for bodies. The Eros is for ultimate reality. And that is latent in your psyche in the same way that sexual desire was latent in your psyche when you were 10. Once you get introduced to puberty, your passions transform. Once you're introduced to this, your passions transform yet again. And you move from the earthly eros to the divine eros. Yeah? Uh, 
Christian tradition will uh, appropriate this language during the talk of how we uh, long for God. That's right. Beginning with exactly right. It's not an accident that St. Augustine says Platonism is the philosophy most consistent with Christianity and his right opinions. Right. So, uh, yeah, the subtlety of this cannot be overstated. Now, another final subtlety. Socrates, from what we saw in 174, the frame scene, Socrates is finally wearing shoes and he never does. You know why? Socrates is in disguise. Because if he took off the shoes, you would notice that he is neither beautiful nor handsome, that he is not a god, but he's not really human either. In fact, Socrates is a spirit, a spirit above, which mediates between heaven and earth. So his uh, introduction by Diotima to the spirit of love is Socrates being shown himself. And if you stop to think about that, those of you who have fallen in love will know what I'm talking about. Your beloved shows you who you are. The people you love hold up a mirror to you and let you know who you are. And that's why getting jilted is so hard because when the mirror breaks, you think that there's no self there because you don't see the reflection. In fact, you're still there, but the, reflected, the mirror which reflected you to you is no longer there. So you feel a loss of self. But in fact, yourself is still there. You just need a different mirror. Yeah? Would he like say that, that more like we, we love love and that's like why we switch like people who we love like in a relationship more that like the people are more a platform for love and that we love love itself and maybe not the we person? We don't love love itself. Love is a desire. Right? And we desire things that we lack. And what we lack is perfection. What we lack is final understanding. What we, like, what we lack is the ultimate, the good thing. That's what everybody wants. So you can't love love itself because it's a desire. You would say so, no. You would say love is a desire, and you only desire things you don't have. So you can't love love. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Which is why the homosexual love is the corruption of love because it doesn't fit yourself. Or it's, it's, it shows you. It's a distorted funhouse mirror of you. If you wanted a natural kind of love, you would go with Ereximenus, right? The harmony of opposites. But heterosexuality is the harmony of opposites, not homosexuality. You said Plato was pretty homosexual. Oh, yeah. Well, then why would he write something that... Well, because what he's saying is, look, um, homosexual desire, it's a fact. I mean, people have... People desire things, homosexual or heterosexual. And not only do they desire bodies, they desire all kinds of stuff money and drugs and all kinds of stuff. So Eros is his example of desire, of the most powerful and primal urge. Um, Plato is setting these guys up saying, look, these guys were all lechers and drunks. They're damn fools. They're dishonest. They are the product of the intellectual uh, circumstances around them. And the intellectual circumstances around them were deeply corrupt, right? Phaedrus represents Homer. Pausanias represents uh, the sophist because he wants to change nomos. Eryximachus represents pre-Socratic physics. Aristophanes represents comedy. Agathon represents tragedy. In other words, these are all the things we're gonna to have to get rid of once we get to the Republic. Get the idea? This is the culture that produced Athens, but the culture that produced the downfall of Athens. Yeah. Um. 
so he never, even though this is like a desire he had, he never really acted on it, right? Because Alcibiades, oh, he like, out, acted on it. oh, he, he did. I'm sure he did. Look, um, my guess is that it's probably impossible to have any erotic desire in bodies that never realizes itself in the world. Maybe there are people that have done this, but my guess is they must be banished very few. All right. So um, no doubt Plato was homosexual in his desires, but by the end of his life, when he writes the laws, he's decided that this is a disordered kind of desire that should be gotten rid of. But the desire for beauty, which leads you to the desire for the upward towards the ultimate good, that is not only the proper kind of desire, but it's the most important kind of desire that anyone could ever have. And you only get it by having Socrates seduce you. What he's describing as the spirit of love which meets between heaven and earth, that's him. Diatima is showing him who he is. Because that's what your beloved always does to you. That's what it means to be. Well, that's one of the aspects of your love. So love is the other half of that. Well, no, love, your lover lets you know who you are. He's a neighbor Socrates. You find yourself in your beloved. He's a Socrates as a family. That's why when you get relationship ends. It's like shattering the mirror. You can't see yourself anymore. And you feel a loss of self. But in fact, it's not a genuine loss of self. What you've lost is the reflection of yourself. of the honor of God, which is an idea, not a woman. Although she's represented as a woman because he wants to distinguish himself from all these homosexuals. The way that help, the thing that helped me see this case is that all the other people praise Eros, but then Alcibiades comes in, uh, and he praises Eros also. He praises Socrates. So what Plato is suddenly doing the whole time is saying that Socrates is Eros. He's the spirit of love. He's the spirit of love. Okay. So so you wouldn't know that this was that, that Socrates was talking about himself in his speech. Plato has not put shoes on before he goes, which he never does, and then says that the spirit of love is barefooted, hardy, and uh, is the product of necessity and craft and all the rest of that jazz. If you st step back from it, you realize that what she's doing is showing him himself. But we put shoes on so you wouldn't guess that. That's why that line matters. You, you remember your physics, who cares what these wearing sandals? It turns out to make quite a bit of difference. There's no line in Plato which doesn't have that property. So you're not reading Plato until you read it really slowly, and you read it, I've already read it a couple of times, and you can start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Right. And if this mania takes you over, there's nothing more interesting than reading all of Plato and then reading it again. <laughs> it just, it's messed up, but it's true. It's much more addictive than crack. All right. I mean, crack is just a physical thing. This just messes you and your mind is permanently changed for the better, but also you realize what a wretch you are, which is what we're talking about in the frame scene. Right? Yeah. Can you explain the sandals part again? Yeah. I was kind of Socrates ordinarily goes around unwashed, with no job, asking people questions and making a pain of making himself a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. right? He doesn't wear sandals because he's tough. And we're gonna find when Alcibiades talks that when they sent him out to uh, leave the city. It's the only time he ever left the city. Um, he, was a, he was an excellent warrior. I mean, he was really tough. But where everybody 
else was cold and had to wrap their feet up, he could walk on snow with his feet and bare feet. It wasn't a problem. At one point, he just sat, he, he stood still for 24 hours, thinking some deep thought. And people just stood there watching him. All the other soldiers were like, what is going on here? But it turns out Socrates is a great soldier. Right? As we're going to find out in the next speech. He has military virtues, too. He's a courageous man. But of course, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice are the common virtues, and Socrates instantiates them all. All right, who's going to do the final speech? Oh, good, good for you. You got the good was it Plato or Socrates that has a wife and kids? Socrates has a wife. Plato doesn't. I don't know. I got those mixed up. That's why I was confused about why I was in the speech. And so I was reading through this last speech and I was like, this is interesting. It's not what I expected. What's this last one about? What's this last speech? Oh, so first I have a question. Just, is Alcibiades being ironic when he's on the Senate? Yes or no? Okay, because it comes across as, to someone reading it for philosophy, it comes across as actually an encomium, uh, praising Socrates, but the way that he's speaking, you know, he doesn't seem particularly happy about these things, and, but he's also you know, very taken with Socrates. So he opens and closes this speech by saying that Socrates is somehow more than human, um, and also saying that he's really confused by him, and he's like, I can only speak in likenesses. Um, and it just, that, his whole bit at the beginning really reminds me of not only the letter of love that we just finished with, but also the cave, because he can't get at the truth itself. So he's kind of speaking in what he can. Um, and he really, he doesn't get, um, he doesn't get Socrates, and he compares him to, what is it, the Salinas? And he says like, he has this mythic, incomprehensible wisdom, but I don't get it. Um, and so Socrates, he talks about how Socrates' words reveal the faults in people. They reveal where they're in need of the gods and the initiatory rituals, which are those something in particular? Or yeah, they? those would be the, uh, the mystery religions. Okay. Okay. Um, and that the words of Socrates, even when they're spoken by other people who aren't skilled orators, still capture the audience. Um, and I thought that was particularly interesting because someone like Gorgias can speak and capture his audience, but if someone who is not skilled uses those same words, they might not necessarily. But Socrates speaks the truth, and the truth captures his audience. Um, so Alcibiades, in listening to Socrates, realizes that he's not living a fulfilled life. And there are two different things that have been referenced as a fulfilled life. One is an examined life, and one is a life where you're looking at the good. And Alcibiades is not living either of these. And he realizes this, and he also realizes that he loves honor more than he loves truth or philosophy. Um, and he sees what will make him happy, but he leaves anyway. And he's so ashamed that he tries to stay away, but is also compelled to come back. Um, and so he's, he's kind of a wreck, and I think he, he seems really frustrated with himself in this speech. Um, and then he says that Socrates seems ignorant and thunderstruck. And I don't know if this is the Socratic irony that he's talking about, or where Socrates is always saying, oh, I, I don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Explain it to me. Um, but that was, is there something else behind that? Or is no, that, that? Okay. 
Socrates is not content, he has contempt for beautiful people, even more so than contempt for, oh, not more so, but equally with contempt for honor and money and things like that, which raises the question, where is Socrates on the ladder of love? Uh, I don't have an answer for that, but it's an interesting question. Um, and then he says that Socrates has moderation more than the others. Uh, he can drink as much as the others do and never get drunk. But it, he also, when he's on campaign with the other guys, he can take pleasure in the festivals and things, and the other men can't. And like you were saying, where Socrates has his virtues, he has courage, he has moderation, he has these because of his fruitful love. And the other guys don't have this fruitful love, so they don't have these virtues, they don't have the moderation, um, and they can't take pleasure even though they are doing the same thing Socrates is, just to a greater extreme. Alcibiades has fallen in love with truth as he sees it in Socrates. Um, and I think to some extent he thinks he's actually fallen in love with truth, um, but he's not willing to devote himself to it. And it was really a little bit painful reading this because you can see a little bit of yourself in Alcibiades, and you can see a little bit of everyone you know in Alcibiades, who they see what they ought to do, they see what will make them happy, and they don't do it anyway. Um, and he, he sees the value of truth, but he won't devote himself to pursuing it. So, like Augustine says, give him a chance to be in confidence, but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, so he why this is what happens when you, when you see the truth, and you won't, you're not willing to pursue it. Um, and Socrates is very clear about that, that when Alcibiades goes to him and he's like, you're my best lover, but you haven't said anything to me yet, so I thought I'd bring it up, and it's just really awkward. Um, and Socrates, I felt a little bad for Alcibiades reading this because Socrates basically says, you know, you're, you're talking about how love ought to be a transferring of the good from the lover to the beloved, but you're asking me to exchange gold for bronze. And it's just, it's so painful. But I thought it was really interesting. There's a line, um, where is it? Um, so it's at, 218D, if you're interested in looking at it. But he's talking, this is when, when Alcibiades kind of propositions Socrates, and he says, so I should be far more ashamed before men of good sense for not gratifying a man like you than I should be before the many and senseless for gratifying you. And that's the way that Socrates talks about philosophy. That's the way that he talks about the good. So Alcibiades thinks he loves the truth, but he doesn't, he loves Socrates, but Socrates actually loves the truth. And Alcibiades doesn't see the dif <coughs> excuse me, difference, really. Um, and it's, it's painful to watch him, because I got the sense in reading it that if he were, if he tried hard enough, if he were willing to work for it enough, he, he could live the philosophical life. Because he starts to pick these things up, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he's willing to do that. Um, and then he also, Alcibiades talks about how there's more to Socrates than meets the eye. Um, and that's one of the reasons I say I think he could actually live the philosophical life if he tried, because he listens to these speeches and he sees, he sees, I think he makes the metaphor of like the gold on the inside. When you crack it open, you see that there's beauty on the inside. Um, but he's not there yet. Uh, and Socrates says, you, you want me to 
exchange gold for bronze, and you won't live for the truth. I mean, it's not the exact words, but you won't live for the truth, but you want truth in return. Um, and Alcibiades sees all of this and is just extremely frustrated and angry, but also just awed and in love, and it's sad. It's sad on, on multiple, like a philosophical and a spiritual and just an emotional kind of pity level. That's a nice gun. There's a lot to unpack in this final speech. Let us talk about this. Okay. First off, they talk about Marsyas the Seder. You need to know the backstory here. Marsyas was a musician, and he said, You know what? I'm such a great musician that I could, in a musical competition, defeat Apollo himself. I'm just great. Apollo hears this, comes down, and says, Let's dance. And he said, you best be as good as you say you are, because if you can't beat me, you're going to be in trouble. So they have a musical competition, and Apollo being divine, and also being Socrates' favorite god, remember he's a follower of Apollo. Note the guy in the frame scene, Apollodorus, means follower of Apollo. Okay, <laughs> that's the guy who's telling us this. None of these things are accidental. Okay, um, he also talks about the Silenae. Those are little figures with a kind of rough exterior. When you open them up, you see gold. And of course, remember, gold means the same thing in here that it does in the Republic. So you get uh, um, wisdom. And there's wisdom inside his words. But what you need to do is strip off the outer bark of irony to find out what's going on there. So what it looks like it is is not what it really means because it's ironic. And when you can finally see that, you realize that this is the guy. This is the only guy worth talking to. He's the only person talking sense, and no one else can do this but him. Now, Marsyas, go back to him. Um, Apollo is ticked off because he says, "Look, I'm a divine musician, and you're not." So, as a punishment for losing this, I'm going to flay you alive and take the skin off your body. The skin that gets taken off the body is not just off Marsyas, but off the Socratic arguments. You peel away the levels of irony to get to the essence within. And it's a gold, in essence. So when we look at rough, ugly, barefoot Socrates, we think, what, what can we have here? And the answer is, if you look within, if you move from the body to the soul, you will see that he has gold within. Okay. Now, Alcibiades is a party animal. I mean, you would definitely want, if you're going to have a party, you definitely want to invite him because he's a riot. All right? In a culture in which male beauty is a big deal, he's very handsome. He's also very effeminate. He speaks with a lisp. He's a real kind of queeny sort of guy, um, except that he has completely unlimited ambition. So what he wants is not um, honor. Honor is secondary. What he wants is power. That's why he uh, tries to get, has Athens make him a general and they invade Sicily. He wants to run that. Eventually he wants to take control of Athens. Um, he wants power. Then he flips over. And he's the guy that goes over to the Spartan side and then impregnates the wife of the E4 because he wants to run Sparta too. And he's a completely out of control libido. And then when the Spartans get wise, then he takes off, goes to Persia, and tries to sell both Sparta and Greece and, and Athens to the Persians. Okay, so 
he is loyal to nobody but himself, and he is interested in nobody's welfare but himself, but he doesn't know how to achieve his own welfare. He thinks he'll be better off when he can become a great tyrant. Yeah. Is this, uh, is, are they saying the symposium is before the fall of Athens? or mm-hmm. Okay. So he didn't This is going on. Ah. This is going on at a very important juncture, just before we enter, we uh, invade Sicily. Okay. okay. So Alcibiades is at the peak of his career. Right? He hasn't suffered the debacles that we're going to encounter in Sicily. He's the man of the hour. Um, he is notoriously homosexual, but also a drunk and completely unscrupulous and more than willing to use his mental abilities, which are actually quite considerable, but he uses them for unworthy ends. So now he tries to seduce Socrates. And this is actually one of the funniest scenes in the Platonic Dialogues, because um, he's essentially propositioning Socrates. He says, look, let's have homosexual sex so you'll really show how much you love me, and uh, then you can give me a lot of wisdom in exchange for my own wonderful self. And Socrates looks at him and says, son, uh, I know you think that you're your own wonderful self, but I don't think you're as wonderful as all that, tell you the truth. And not only that, you find yourself really attractive, and uh, that's not especially attractive. No, uh, Alcibiades can't figure out how anyone can withstand his charm. So he says, look, son, I mean, you really do not understand the way I work, and I do not love the way you do. So I understand why you love me, because I have gold inside. I am at a loss to understand why anybody loves you, given your moral character. But you're a handsome, effeminate guy. You dress like Liberace. And um, you think that because you're in the ascendant politically, that you are really an amazingly great human being. I can't even begin to disentangle how wrong you are. So Socrates says, uh, well, we'll figure it out. But what it looks to me is that you're trying to exchange sex for wisdom. And anyone who would do that would have to not be very wise, would he? So he says, well, why don't we wrestle? They wrestle and nothing happens. He says, let's sleep together. But as he says, it's like sleeping with my father or my older brother. I mean, there was no sex. We didn't really sleep together, although we, we slept together in the literal sense. What kind of person is this? And he says, on the one hand, I was really angry that he disrespected me. On the other hand, I was completely amazed at this guy's self-control. He's a much more complete human being than I am. That makes me love him even more, damn it. Right? So here what we have is the ironic inversion of the traditions of Athenian pederasty. Here we have the beautiful young man chasing the ugly old lug. That's not supposed to work that way. Right? But they both realize that Socrates' soul really is beautiful, whereas Alcibiades' soul is not. He'd rather not think about that. Okay. Now, Alcibiades wasn't invited to the party. Instead, he was out with a bunch of friends doing what the Athenian elite does, which is getting drunk. So he comes in at the head of a band of revelers, and they're all drunk, and they're disorderly, and they're making a nuisance of themselves, and all decorum, all intellectual seriousness disappears when Alcibiades leads a whole crew of the drunken lads in. And then he sits down and he says, uh, you guys are going to have to drink up. You know, you look sober. That's really a problem. Then he sees Socrates there. He says, ah, oh, Socrates. 
You're always where I least expect you. Okay. Uh, Alcibiades comes in wearing the uh, uh, laurel in his ears, uh, over his ears, and he's got a thyrsus, which is a phallic symbol. That's what they had in the Bacchae. All right, remember that? Okay. He says, well, let me give to Agathon, this beautiful young man, let me give him uh, a garland for his success, but let me give one to Socrates, too, because you guys don't understand how, but he's the one who really deserves the garland. Okay. And he says, I'm going to tell you about Socrates, and it's going to be an encomium, a speech of praise of Socrates, but ironically, my speech of praise, my encomium, is also going to be the only genuine indictment of Socrates. See, here's the deal. Socrates isn't human. Socrates is the, is the spirit of love which mediates between heaven and earth. He's less than a god, but he's more than human. So human beings have no place indicting their ontological superior. You know what you need in order to indict a spirit? You need a god. And Alcibiades is actually taking the guise of a god here. Who does he remind you of? Alcibiades is Dionysus. And when Dionysus comes to town, you'd best pay attention. Head of a band of revelers, he's drunk, and he's you know, erotically charged, yeah. Hecathon says, let Dionysus judge between us. No, and he doesn't say, he says in the, in the beginning, it's the Frenzy. Right. So it's not, it's not Agathon that says that. It's one of the, uh, I think it's, uh, it's uh, Aristodemus that says that. Oh, no, no, maybe it is Agathon. Yeah, maybe it is Agathon. I'm sorry, you're right. But the point is, that's why that line early in the frame scene matters. Because what, he's, what they're doing is allowing Dionysus to choose between them. Except that Dionysus is named Alcibiades here. But what he represents is what, Alcibiades, is what Dionysus represents. Human irrationality. And when Dionysus comes to town, um, you're likely just about to get you're you're likely just about to be destroyed, right? Because the irrational has taken over. Now the irrational was speaking before the assembled citizens and persuaded them to invade Sicily. And they say, you not only should we invade Sicily, but since I'm an experienced, decorated war hero, you should make me general now. You have to imagine somebody riotously, I mean, outrageously queer, all right, saying, you know, with a lisp, I should be made the general because I'm a great war hero. He actually narrates his experience with war. It's the only time Socrates, he and Socrates were both sent out on a military expedition, and it's the only time Socrates has ever left the city. Why? Because of the uh, journey motif, all right? So he always stays home, but he's always on a journey. It's a spiritual journey, not a physical journey. So that's what makes it better than Odysseus. But he also turns out to be a ferocious fighter, at least as good a fighter as you're going to find on the field. And he stands his ground and with great fortitude and great um, force fights against the enemy of his city. And, Alci and Alcibiades, who's a rich kid, he's in the cavalry because um, it costs money to supply yourself with um, horses and their accoutrement, and um, he gets in trouble, and he's almost cut off by the opposing forces. And Socrates springs to the rescue, hacks his way through, saves Alcibiades, and Alcibiades gets out. Okay. 
the generals who are leading this expedition see that Socrates is a fierce fighter. And they say, look, we'd like to give you some military honors. We'll give you the, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor or whatever it is they have there. Um, and Socrates says, I'm not interested. I mean, first of all, um, what am I, six? I would feel ridiculous with uh, shiny buttons and a piece of ribbon. I mean, do I look stupid? No. Socrates is uninterested in honors because, well, look at the people that are honoring you. Do you care what they think? They think you're great. Does that matter to you? If they thought you were awful, would that matter to you? Since you have no, dis no interest whatever and nothing but the most sovereign contempt for public opinion about you, you say, Socrates says, keep your medals. Instead, here's what you do. Give them to Alcibiades because he really likes that kind of thing. And they do. So now, so now Alcibiades is a decorated war hero. So we're going to go to him to find out what the best military strategy is. No. So, first of all, Alcibiades is Dionysus. He is the personification of irrationality. He is also more than human, but more than human in the inverse to Socrates' way. He's kind of demonic, all right? And he says, Socrates is the only one that's ever been worthy of my love, and he didn't love me. So I ran away from him because I couldn't stand how bad he made me feel about myself. After all, I'm a really great guy. And he was the only person that didn't love me, and that's why I love him. But the problem with Socrates is that he goes too far. Remember that all tragedy revolves around the idea of going beyond proper limits, and then you have to realize that you've gone beyond proper limits, and then you die. Okay. Alcibiades, in his encomium, is also giving us the true speech of indictment of Socrates. In other words, the spirit of love is being indicted by Dionysus, the god. And that's the only, in other words, that's why the apology was wrong. You're in no position to judge Socrates, whereas a god can bring the indictment. And here's the indictment. He says, Socrates, I accuse you of being excessive and lacking a sense of proportion. Why? Because you want more than human virtue. In other words, Socrates, your tragic flaw is that you're too good which if you stop and think about it, it turns out not to be a flaw. Because this is a send-up of Euripidean tragedy. Yes, yes. Plato, he can write comedy. We saw the section in Aristophanes. He can also write tragedy. Remember when you read the Phaedo and everybody's crying and laughing? The same man can write both comedy and tragedy. So, Alcibiades and his revelers break up the party after he gives this encomium on Socrates, which is really the accusation of Socrates. And Socrates' flaw is that he's too good. Okay. Then they go out because they haven't rioted enough and they need more to drink. Okay. All of, so of the revelers, plus everyone in the party that decided not to get drunk tonight, they all follow Alcibiades. Why? Because they're going to get drunk tonight. That's the irony of saying, look, we're all so hungover, we can't get drunk. And then they all get drunk. But only three people stay. 
Socrates, Agathon, and Aristophanes. And they're discussing a problem in literary theory. What are the capacities of the greatest kind of poet? And it turns out that the greatest poet can write both comedy and tragedy. We have yet to see such a poet because Aeschylus or Sophocles or Euripides, they all wrote good tragedies, but none of them wrote comedy. Aristophanes writes funny comedies, but you could never expect a nitwit like that to write tragedy. But the best, the greatest kind of poet can write both comedy and tragedy. Okay, here's the deal. This is an ironic parody of the Euripidean deus ex machina. It's a comedy about tragedy. But, as we saw in the Phaedo, it's also a tragedy about comedy. He finds it's funny and everybody else is crying. So what Plato is saying is, yeah, the same man can write both comedy and tragedy. Do you know who that is? And the answer is Plato. So what he's saying is, the best kind of of dramatic writer can write both comedy and tragedy. And he's right when he says that very few people are capable of doing both. Very, very few. I mean, it's not easy to write either comedy or tragedy, but very few people have been able to write comedies and tragedies of the first order. Uh, if you think of uh, somebody, the, the one that comes to mind immediately is Shakespeare, right? He could write both great comedies and great tragedies, but if you think about somebody like Moliere, a great comic writer, but couldn't write tragedy. Think of somebody like Corneille, or think of somebody like Seneca, if you're looking for a Roman. They could write great tragedies, but not great comedies. You have to be the complete poet to do this. And it turns out that you're reading the book by the complete poet, in which he's announcing himself, I, Plato, am the greatest poet because I can write both comedy and tragedy. This is a funny scene, right? He gets accused of hubris, pride, What's his pride? He wants to be too good. All right, so it's ironic. You slip from comedy to tragedy and back again, and sometimes you do them both at the same time. So he doesn't even mention Euripides. Euripides is not here, but he really wants to take on Euripides. And so what he gives us is Dionysus, taken essentially from the Bacchae. And that turns out to be Alcibiades, and he is only too real. He is not a fictional character. And when Alcibiades comes to town, or when, when uh, uh, Dionysus comes to town, you'd best pay attention because you, too, have Dionysus within you. We all have irrational passions. That's part of the human condition. All right. At the end, he's trying to convince the comic writer that he should be, if you're really great, to be a tragic writer too. And he's trying to commit the tragic writer that he should also be able to write comedies, but neither of them can. So they keep drinking, and eventually they just slide under the table, right? He's, he's drunk them dead drunk. And he, of course, never gets drunk at all, no matter how much he drinks. All right? And then he says his prayers to the sun and goes to the Agora and makes a pain, you know, makes a nuisance of himself which is what he does every day. That's his job. So the only one who is at his proper post is Socrates. The only sober one among all these drunks is Socrates. The only sexually restrained one among these lechers is Socrates. And he says, 
if I ever hear anyone tell me that the destruction of Athens was caused by that wicked Socrates and his corrupting influence on Alcibiades, I will have your head. Yeah? Well, couldn't you say that since he gave Alcibiades the medals and therefore the people of Athens thought he was good for no, that? No, the, the officers gave him. He said give him to... He, the oh, officers the officers gave, gave him. Yeah. He said, look, I don't want those. What am I, stupid? So, and then the officers gave it to him. But couldn't you, couldn't you also say that if, he, if Socrates knew all of this, then how come he didn't stop Alcibiades from, like teaching that the invasion of Sicily was good. Um, do you think that, remember that he never goes to the law courts and he never goes to the, uh, he never leaves the Agora to engage in political activity. He says in the Phaedo, the reason why I don't is because I would have been killed much earlier if I had. The reason I got to be 70 years old is because I left politics alone. <laughs> so if you people are going to be stupid and there's nobody willing to say, well, this is a bad idea, um, one man, Socrates, is not going to be able to stop okay. it. Yeah. Okay, this is before that. I believe, again, uh, Bernadette doesn't believe that, but this is my understanding of it. I believe that this is meant to be the night of the destruction of the Herms. In other words, all the boys are going to go out and commit sacrilege because they're all drunk. The only one who doesn't is Socrates, Agathon, and Aristophanes. And the last two don't go because they're too drunk to walk. So, this is the true apology of Socrates. Yeah? Wait, so, but Cleo, Cleo knew that happened already, right? Right. He's, remember, he's writing this around 380. Right? Socrates was killed in 399, and the Peloponnesian War ended in 404. This would have been about 414. The reason, the reason why I had you read that section of the Thucydides is so you know what's going on in, this, in, the, in the symposium. One of the problems that I have with a purely disciplinary, siloed reading of this is that if you don't know the Thucydides, you can't really understand the philosophical concerns that are here. You need Thucydides, you need Euripides, you need Aristophanes at a very minimum. You also need Homer. So do you see now why I had you read all these things? If you don't read them, or if you read them in a purely disciplinary way, so uh, you take a class, and we're going, to, we're going to talk about literature here, or we're going to take another class, we're going, to see, we're going to talk about philosophy here. The fact of the matter is they're just all books. There's no special magic thing that people do in literature classes or in philosophy classes or in any other kind of classes that um, can justifiably leave out the entirety of a culture. That's why I teach the Greek books the way I do. That's why I had to read all, the, all these uh, uh, books prior to this, because you need this background in order to make sense of what's going on. It's a, in other words, it's a big deal that this is supposed to be the night of the destruction of the Herms. If you don't know what that is, right, then you don't understand what Plato is trying to say. Right? Too often nowadays in intellectual circles, um, people claim to be interdisciplinary, but what they mean by that is far too often that they are non-disciplinary. They just think whatever they want in whatever chaotic way they like. Um, here, I'm just saying, look, I'm going to gather up all, as a matter of historical fact, all the relevant texts that I'm familiar with. And because there aren't all that many texts from ancient Athens, in fact, it is possible to read them all. And once you do, then you begin to see the connections between the two. And then you realize that um, disciplinary boundaries only exist for accountants, so they know who to give what check to. But disciplines really don't make much difference. 
There's no special thing that philosophers do, or special thing that literary critics do, or special thing that historians do, or special things that political scientists do. Books are books. The advantage here is that you get to pull them all together and you see what's going on in a culture. If you don't know about Euripides and his twisted tragedies, and particularly about the figure of Dionysus, it's not possible to make make sense of what's going on with Alcibiades here. And if you don't know that Alcibiades is the guy who leads the the Sicilian expedition and destroys the city, you won't see what's important about this. So you've got to bring all these things together to get a general understanding of what's going on. So in order to read Plato, you have to read a whole bunch of stuff before that. And then, after you read Plato, you've got to read it again because the first time you read it, you didn't really read it. And then after that, you might be able to begin understanding everything that comes after. That's right. So you're always one reading behind when you read and that's just the way it is. Plato is, I think, the greatest philosopher and poet of the Western tradition. I don't know of any mind that can compete with Plato in terms of the stuff that he can do. Remember that uh, Plato is writing comedy and tragedy, but in the Phaedrus, if you read that, you will find that all the citations are to lyric poets. He says, I have a new kind of lyric poetry. It's better than that other stuff. And the same with the comedy and tragedy has been superseded. And the Platonic dialogues taken as a whole are a giant ironic epic. So he writes comedy, tragedy, lyric, and epic, which is all the kinds of poetry you have in, in Greece. And also he writes it better than any than the best in each field. He said, I'm the super poet. By the way, I'm going to try and solve all the outstanding intellectual problems of our time. That'll be the Republic, book six. And by the way, I'm also starting a new religion. We're going to worship the form of the good. It's going to be kind of rational monotheism, or monotheism without revelation. The form of the good is like Yahweh, it just doesn't get upset. It just sits there being good. <laughs> and that's a great thing for it to do, but um, it doesn't make for as great a story when Yahweh gets pissed off. Yahweh is a jealous God. The form of the good is just this crystal of excellence, just being excellent. <laughs> Which is a great thing, once again, but it's not very personal, it, not ver- it's not oriented towards personality. So Plato is a poet, and the greatest poet in Greece, in my estimation. You don't have to believe that, it's okay, but I believe that. I think he's also the greatest philosopher of Greece. Uh, Not because Aristotle doesn't have better answers. Aristotle's answers are better, but Plato asks all the big questions, and he asks them first. Answers, I know it's going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but answers are relatively less important than questions. The questions that Plato asks in in the dialogues are going to be the substance of what's going to be developed for the next 25 centuries. I mean, Alfred North Whitehead said, Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato. There's a lot of truth in that. The ironic, funny thing about Plato is that although he's the great questioner, and as you will know from working out, coming up with a question so you can write a paper on this, asking questions is hard work, and it's a skill that can be learned. Plato is the best asker of questions I can imagine. Alas, and this is one of the funny, ironic things about the human condition, my, my best understanding is that almost all of Plato's answers are wrong. But they're wrong in very interesting ways. And that's what's important about them. That's why I'm very happy if you write me a paper that's wrong in an interesting way, you can get an A like that. You can get a C by being boring. Right? Do something interesting with your brain. Right? And show me you got some smarts. Show me you engage with these books. And, you know, take your big grade. Yeah. So, so this whole book, 
Well, it is a comedy. I mean, there is, it is funny, but it's a high comedy, very different from Aristophanes' comedy. But it's also a tragedy, because he's the best man in the city, and he has to die condemned with a kind of judicial murder. And Plato is seriously pissed off. But he's not the kind of guy who's going to brawl. Instead, he's going to say, I'm going to write the finest, most crushing send-up of the, of, the, of the elite of Athens and the intellectual forces they represent. The elite of Athens were unfit to rule. Why? Because no man is fit to rule others until he learns to govern himself. None of these guys can govern themselves. They say, we're not going to get drunk tonight. They all end up with Alcibiades raising hell. Now, what do they represent? Phaedrus is Homer. Pausanias is the Sophists. Eryximachus is pre-Socratic physics. Aristophanes is the comedy writers. Agathon is the tragedy writers. And Alcibiades is Greek religion rearing its ugly head because he's Dionysus. Now, this kicks butt. In other words, I am reasonably confident that you did not see when you first read this what was going on here. Once you know that this is a comic send-up of Euripides, right? Now, this is a comedy about Euripides' tragedies. So, Euripides, do you really think it's good to introduce characters that represent madness and irrationality and have people exposed to that? Probably not. That's why we're going to get rid of the tragic writers in the Republic. We're also going to get rid of the comic writers. And Homer and the epic has to go too. And the lyric writers will go with them. But fortunately, we have something to fill that gap, and it's Plato. Yeah. So then how come Plato is writing this kind of as a, like a comedy and a tragedy? It's a comedy and a tragedy. Because what he's saying is, look, the problem with these poets is that they don't know, is that they're not philosophical. They don't know reality. So they make stuff up. And the stuff is often of very dubious moral significance, and, it, and bad art miseducates the public that absorbs it. So he doesn't get rid of it, he just kind of rewrites it in a better way. Yeah, you know, he's going to get, he says, I have one principle in my literary criticism. My principle is that ethics trumps beauty, trumps aesthetics. You guys, you write very powerful comedies and tragedies, but the problem is, you are not philosophical, and what you are teaching people is immoral. It's bad for them. All right? On the other hand, Plato says, I can write you a comedy, which is different from your comedies, but it'll have the advantage of one being philosophically literate, but also it'll push you in the right direction, because this is moral art. So, all the poetry, get rid of it, we're going to replace it with Plato. All of, uh, while we're getting rid of Homer, we're going to get, unload the, the Homeric gods because they do bad stuff. Instead, we're going to worship the form of the good. And by the way, um, all the problems between Parmenides and Heraclitus or between uh, the uh, atomists and uh, Pythagoreans, all of those philosophical schools, I'm going to synthesize them all into one coherent whole. That's what Book Six of the Republic is. And once I solve those problems, they're solved. If there are any other problems that might crop up in the future, all right, I have given you the method, Socratic dialectic, by which you solve those problems too. So pretty much my work here is done. Yeah? So it seems like the ultimate like, form of hubris that 
Well, it would be if you couldn't actually do it. In other words, it's not a brag if you can back it up. I mean, he doesn't say, look, I'm the greatest poet. He says, I'm going to do this. You figure out what I am. Well, he kind of does say, well, when you talk about the comedic and tragic poet, or how like, the best poet can do that, it's not, he doesn't say it, but it's kind of implied. You have to actually read between the lines, because there's inevitably a certain amount of irony there. But the irony is meant to protect the gold within from the prying eyes of those that are not mentally capable of figuring out what's going on. In other words, Plato's doctrines, if you familiar with the seventh letter, you should read that if you haven't. Okay, it's short, you'll like it. Plato says, my real doctrines I've never actually expressed. They're hidden. What you need to do is flay them like the skin of Marsyas, and like Silenus, if you get rid of the rough exterior, which prevents the unholy and unthoughtful from entering, um, you will find gold within. The seventh letter explains all that? Seventh letter ex doesn't explain that. It just explains, it makes his claim that uh, those of you who think that my doctrines are obvious and uh, immediately absorbable, you're wrong. I have secret doctrine, doctrines. I'm not going to say which or where, but they're there. You figure it. Because he'd like to see them use their head, right? Um, he thinks that just telling somebody the truth um, may or may not convince them that it's the truth. But if you allow them, like, say, the slave boy and the Mino to figure it out on their own, you can really learn stuff. Plato, the Platonic Dialogues, in my view, are the ultimate intellectual whetstone. In other words, they will sharpen you up. No matter what blade you bring to it, it's not sharp enough to cut through this, at least initially and it'll get sharper with use, all right? Strangely enough, the other great poet-philosopher of the Western tradition, Nietzsche, is also one of the great intellectual whetstones. Nothing sharpens you up, well, Plato, but apart from Plato, <laughs> nothing sharpens you up like, like Nietzsche. Nietzsche will make you smarter because he's so outrageous and so over the top. If you want to disagree with him, like Plato, he says, put up or shut up, why am I wrong? Just don't tell me I'm wrong. If you're going to tell Plato he's wrong, you're going to say, well, he's going to say, why? How do you know? And if the answer is, I don't know how I know, it's just shut up. You know, stay outside this. You really don't want to get involved with this. You're too dumb. Imagine, you know those uh, child safety caps they have on medicine? That's what Plato does with his dialogues to protect the innocent and unwary. That's why at the end of the Republic, you have the myth of Ur. In case you didn't understand what the previous 300 pages were about, here's a scary story for you. One time there was a man named Ur. He was dead, but he wasn't dead. He went to the place where dead people go, and he found out you can't get over on the gods and you can't bribe them. The end. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, that's the child safety cap. If you found this completely unintelligible, which is most people's reaction to the Republic at the first reading, um, at the end he says, I have something special for people like you. Um, it's a myth, but it's a better myth than the, one, than the Homeric myths you believe in because you won't hurt yourself with any, or anybody else with this myth. People like you should believe that. And the kind of people he has in mind are Cephalus. Remember, Cephalus gets kicked out of the argument to begin with. Why? Because he thinks he, he's lived a bad life, and he's now sacrificing away before he dies because he's trying to bribe the gods not to send him to hell or to Hades, whatever it is. So we get rid of Cephalus, but at the end, for all those Cephaluses in waiting, you, um, 
who didn't understand what I was talking about, check it out. I have a scary story for people like you. And it's, it's far better than the scary stories Homer told you. Because you'll act in the way that you would if you actually understood what was going on. That's what makes this a good myth and Homer's myth is bad. It's the moral judgment of aesthetics. In other words, ethics is trump over aesthetics. Nietzsche, later on when we get to the 19th century, is going to say, no, aesthetics is trump over ethics. But that's, a, that's term four. We're a ways from that yet. Right now, we're just trying to do the Greeks. Do you see now, at least in part, why I made you do all these other books? Right? It's absolutely essential. And it will become even more obvious why it's essential when we do the Republic. Now, I'm told, because some of you are flying away for Thanksgiving, that we will not meet next week. Instead, we will meet the week after Thanksgiving, and then we will do Plato's Republic. But that gives you enough time to read Plato's Republic again. Do not laugh. I am not joking. All right. When I told you to read it, the reason I did is because when you first read the Republic, you're not reading the Republic. It's not making any sense. It's just a booming, buzzing confusion. You can't read the Republic until you've already read it once. And eventually, it will, I mean, if you think about it and uh, you work at it, it will disclose itself as one of the greatest artworks ever constructed. In other words, as an artwork, it's in the same league as Beethoven's Ninth. I mean, it's completely incomparable. There's nothing like this. And, I mean, you know, if I hadn't actually heard it, I wouldn't believe that it was possible for human beings to construct something like Plato's, like uh, Beethoven's Ninth. In other words, human beings can't do that. It sounds like God Almighty. Well, pretty much with the Platonic Dialogues, and in particular the greatest of the dialogues of the Republic, um, human beings can't do that. But he did. Yeah. So, uh in two weeks we're doing Plato's Republic, but yeah. nothing in between that. Nick. Nothing in between, because a number of people said that they, that their parents, <laughs> <laughs> booked flights for them, which made it impossible to attend class just before Thanksgiving. <laughs> Look, I understand, you want to go home, it's not a problem, but you have to pay your dues, yeah. and I'm going to collect them. So I want you to have a real understanding of Plato, which is why I had you read it in the summer, because that wasn't really reading it. Now you're at the point where you can first begin to read Plato if you've already read it once. There's no easy way of doing this. You know, uh, you can't take the elevator to uh, knowledge. You have to climb the stairs. All right? You are all to get on that Stairmaster and read the Blasted Republic and read it like you mean it because you haven't done that yet. And who wants to present them? <laughs> of course you do. Admirable young man. No, I mean, he's a bulldog. You've got to like that. He wants to, I mean, again, the, the snake bit you sometime. Oh, yes. It'll mess with your brain and look at the result. I mean, you're almost as bad as I am. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that being said, I will see you all in two weeks. Enjoy Thanksgiving, and so help me God, if you do not know the Republic when you come here, I am going to be seriously pissed off. This is good for you. I don't care whether you like it or not. Do as you're told. This is good for you. I know what I'm doing. That being said, have a lovely day. So we're originally. Yeah.